Hello, I'm Holly Alfano, Ilma's CEO. Welcome to Loot Trends. We started Loot Trends in 2020 as a way of keeping in touch with Ilma members as the pandemic took hold. Little did we know how valuable these sessions would be. It was a great way to stay in touch with members. I'd like to thank Chevron Ornite for their ongoing support of our Loot Trends Town Halls. Today, we're going to wrap up 2021 and take a look back at the many challenges our industry faced. We thought 2020 was a crazy year. Little did we know that 2021 would be more of the same. People were trying to return to work, businesses were ramping up again, members were trying to manufacture and ship products. How difficult that would prove to be. We have a great set of panelists today. Greg Julian, President and CEO of Advanced Lubrication Specialties. Colleen Murphy-Smith, Director of Base Oils at Motiva. Mike DiBattista, Sales Manager with Chevron Ornite. And last but not least, Ilma's longtime general counsel, Jeffrey Leiter. If you have a question for me or one of the panelists, just send an email to communications at ilma.org. Let's see what our panelists have to say. I really want to thank you all for participating and just to get things going, you know, what would you say that 2021 was all about in the lubricants industry? Why don't we start with, with you, Greg? Well, uh, without a doubt, it's been the most tumultuous uh, year that, that I've ever been um, exposed to in, in the lubricants industry. Whether it's been raw material issues, employee issues, trucking issues, you name it, we basically had to handle uh, just about every single one of them over the last uh, uh, 12 months or so. And it's not specific to one base oil. It was basically all the base oils, not one additive, basically all the additives, all the suppliers. So uh, you name it, it, it went wrong in 2021. And uh, you know, I think as an industry, uh, we've worked very, very hard. Uh, a lot of the Ilma companies have worked together to try to keep people cool through this whole process. Um, but uh, as I speak right now, there are still a lot of uh, sales control allocations uh, and um, lead times that are probably 10 times what they used to be on some key raw material components. So we are still struggling. Uh, we're hoping for a much better 2022, uh, but uh, we'll just have to see if we can get this thing turned around. Colleen, uh, from your perspective as a supplier of base oils, what would you say that the big challenges were? I think a lot of it was just having to be adaptive to the, I mean, constant changing that was happening in the marketplace. I mean, Greg's right. I mean, we're, we're a supplier for, for Greg's company, but as we went out of 2020 and into 21, I mean, that was a big joke, like, oh, it's going to be better. And then we got hit with, you know, winter storms and COVID demand started coming back up. And we just had to be adaptive to what's happening, not just in North America, but also globally. And that was just impacting a lot. Um, of base oil product flows. I mean, when you think, I mean, I hate to go back to the winter storm, but that took out, you know, 5.2 million barrels a day of capacity just the one on the Gulf Coast. Um, so when you brought those refineries down, I mean, that just had a, a trickle down effect to base oil capacity, production capacity in the Gulf Coast. And then as units started coming back, we kept an eye as far as who's back online, where where is that product going? And again, we had to be adaptive to say, 
how can we best serve our customers? And yeah, I mean, sales control is something we, we never want to have. Um, but we had, as demand was coming back up and customers needed raw materials, we had to look at how do we best you know, manage the barrels we have and also look at where our competitors are on, on sourcing their products. So adaptability is really key. And it's still like that. I mean, it, it is still, you know, every, every time, I mean, I'm knocking on wood right now, but right now our eyes are on hurricane season. So we're just bated breath waiting to see what happens. Um, I'll also say too, I've never had, and, and, and our team has never had to be so close to our customers to understand the dynamics of what's happening. Because as Greg mentioned, it's all raw materials. So constantly talking with them and finding out where, what's happening on your demand side, but also your availability for products. Where are you on manufacturing? So that's been really key to find out what's happening with our Elma customers. Adaptability has been the big one for us. Yeah, I think that's been the case for a lot of people um, mm-hmm. because people have had to, people use the, overuse the word pivot in 2020. And I think they're still kind of pivoting in 2021 and having to be flexible and having to be um, fast and, you know, react to the situation as it's, you know, as it presents itself. Mike, can you give your perspective as an additive manufacturer? Yeah, a bit of a broken record. Um, Two words, supply logistics, right? So from a supply standpoint, as we were crawling out from under uh, 2020 and COVID related, uh, rebound, we got hit with that Texas freeze. And so um, although we were not directly affected by that because our manufacturing capacity was outside the freeze zone, it, it just affected so many raw materials and is commonplace in our industry right now. We talk about there simply aren't enough molecules available to, to meet customer demand. So as demand was rebounding, we, we were seeing um, demand increases across the board in virtually all industries, we, we got hit by that freeze. And so we literally had dozens of raw material suppliers to declare force majeure. And so that, that hampered the industry's ability to supply the additive packages that the, uh, that the market needed. That coupled with the, um, the continued logistical issues, everything from ocean going freight, dealing with um, some port access issues due to COVID-related shutdowns to, as we're all aware in North America, the, the, the truck driver shortage. So whether it be delayed or no-show of inbound uh, raw materials or customer trucks or even our own third-party logistic vehicles not being able to get um, into the plant on time to, to make deliveries on time. So as um, Greg said earlier, it has been one heck of a challenging year for us. Mike, if I can ask a question, there's been so many force majeures related to components that go into the additive industry. Are are we facing a capacity issue? Is there enough capacity in the additive and component industry to handle the the demand over the next couple of years? Are we finally seeing an issue where, hey, uh, the reduction in these these industries and the closure of all these plants are finally catching up to us? Or is this just kind of a short-term issue that you expect to get through and there should be plenty of capacity moving forward? Thanks for that, Greg. Um, we certainly see this as short-term, but before all these issues arose, we certainly um, were not capacity constrained. I'm not talking about my company in general, but I'm talking about additives. We were not capacity constrained. Capacity constrained. We were actually uh, we felt that the added uh, the additive industry was long in supply, so uh, we've had these discussions internally. 
And uh, it certainly seems that once we come out of this supply constrained environment that we're currently living in, we, we will go back to an environment where um, we, we believe that there will be enough additive supply to supply the market. Yeah. Thanks. Jeff, how would you sum up what 2021 was all about for the lubricants industry? You know, I go back to the beginning of the year, and, and I think in talking with ILMA members back in December, January timeframe, as we were seeing the pandemic effects go down, members really saw us, because of their closeness to their customers, 2021 being a year of great opportunity that they could increase sales, you know, really come out of the, the pandemic with strong position. And then we got hit with the winter storms, the supply chain and logistics issues. So it's been a volatile year, I think probably would be the way I sum it up at this point. You know, folks are managing what they can with their customers. And, you know, some of those opportunities perhaps are down further down the road. Great. The other thing that we've heard about from members and we kind of, I think it was touched on really quickly is the steel drum shortage. I know that we've seen just steel in general, unfilled orders at the highest level in five years, record prices, U.S. prices are 68% higher than the global market. Has that affected any of your operations? Yeah, yeah absolutely. The pricing has literally gone through the roof in, in the last uh, couple of months. Good news is the, the supply situation is getting a little better. I think the, the steel producers are finally catching up on the demand side of it, but uh, it was definitely a major issue that I, that I think we finally have under control. However, if you look at the other packaging components, there are still some issues related to past uh, package for bottles, uh, as well as the film that is used for EPAC manufacturing is a very, very tight supply right now. Caps still tend to be an issue. Uh, I think what we're finding is that a lot of the plastics used in our industry are finding homes in uh, other uh, uh, COVID-related uh, supply channels. And uh, where this was never an issue in the past, and that's why I bring up the issue on uh, supply, making sure that we have enough supply, I think what we're seeing is because of COVID, a lot of these plastics are going, being pivoted or diverted into other industries, which is just causing us a tremendous shortage uh, that we just can't, can't catch up on. So yeah, packaging is a significant issue. I don't see it getting any better for the rest of the year, but um, I'm being told that 2022 uh, should be a much, much better shape. Yeah, let's hope that this, uh, all of these supplies, supply issues start to unravel and start to relax a little bit as we move into 2022. But I know that there are some, some uh, issues that are going to take much longer to resolve and not just supply, but overall general operational challenges. For my awareness, is that is that um, what you just described? Is that unique? Is that North America specific or is your supplies coming globally or from North America for caps and um, pellets and plastics? Yeah, these are all North American right now. All North American, that's what I thought. Yeah. Uh, it's Sorry, it's funny, I think the global position is, is much better than the North American position, but I also think we have recovered a lot faster than the rest of the world. So that, that could be one of the drivers. We've touched on a number of issues that are, you know, hopefully short term and that will begin to resolve themselves over the next year to 18 months, hopefully into 2022, we'll start to see some relief. But we do know that the pandemic has 
brought on some challenges that are going to be much longer term. And I want to ask Colleen, maybe she wanted to touch on a couple of those. I think for, um, thanks Holly, I think for us longer term, um, from a basal perspective, I'll say, you know, we're definitely, the demands there, we feel, you know, part of our challenge is just being able to, I mean, we've been at full capacity since the storm coming out of the winter storm. So I think right now it's just once more capacity comes on stream and things start to normalize a bit, I feel hopeful. I, mean, I am hopeful that that supply demand balance will, will be back in, in line. I think for me, the, what Mike had brought up earlier, some of the issues are still the truck driver shortage. I mean, we, we, we send base oils out on all modes. So the driver shortage is a big concern. It, it trucking is part of our, it's not our largest part, but it is part of our, our mode that we send out. I sit in our fuels organization in Motiva. So I actually have visibility in what's happening on the fuel side as far as in the mid-Atlantic, really advocating on, on some, some additional help just to get drivers out there. I, and Holly, I'm sure in your area, you're hearing a lot of that um, lobbying for more drivers, things, people are being creative and, and how can we get more drivers on the road? I think that to me is more concerning about that part of the supply chain imbalance. I'll say on a softer side away from base oils, some longer term impacts that I've seen with the Motiva's perspective is just the workforce changes of that. People have had options and the past year has given them time to think about where's their career path and what do they want to do? And especially with the younger generation. So Motiva's definitely seen some impacts as far as I'd say employees that have been with us less than five years, they've had, I'll call it soul searching, <laughs> but trying to decide, you know, not specific to Motiva, but where is my industry? Where's my path want to be? And, and um, so we've seen a, quite a bit of turnover um, within that workforce. And some of it is like, what do we do as a company to address some of that? Some of it's flexibility, um, work from home. Motiva clearly came out and said, we're a work from work company. And now we're having to kind of pause and think, are, are we a work from work company? Will we allow flex working hours? So as I'll say more of the younger employees start to look at some other options, that's going to be a big concern with us down the, how do you build up that younger generation? Um, and also I'll just add to, uh, I've been with Shell and Motiva for 29 years. If you talk to college graduates right now, they're not coming in thinking this is the company they're going to retire from. So some of it is, you know, how do you attract um, employees that, you know, maybe only be with you for five years? So that's been a lot of discussion with Motiva leadership uh, and on that longer term impact. And that's been a direct result of COVID and work from home. Greg, how about you? Have you seen some of these uh, challenges with, with your um, employees and the workforce in general? Uh, without a doubt. I mean, uh, if, you, if you look at, uh, at our manufacturing floor, most of our manufacturing floor, we have been probably 10% down compared to where our budget is. And uh, we've seen a lot of turnover there as well, uh, temporary help coming in and then finding work elsewhere or, or just saying, hey, I'd rather take the paycheck from the government. So I, I think if you look at, at the industry in whole from a, a workforce, from the laborers out, uh, out on the floor, it's been a real challenge for us. I agree with Colleen in, trying, in terms of trying to bring in younger folks and trying to groom them for the industry. I think there's been so much negative connotation associated with the lubricant and the oil industry in general that most folks are trying to stay away from that because it's not glamorous, it's, it's not exciting in their mind, they don't think it's going to last. 
So I think we're partly responsible for that, but I can tell you that you know a lot of the input I'm seeing is that there's certainly a big demand growth for us and there's certainly a lot of investment still being put into our industry. So I think it is positive for the younger generation. We just got to communicate this down to the college level and let these people know that this is still an exciting place to work. I mean, there's not a lot of jobs out there for chemical engineers that don't involve you working from a facility and actually going out there and doing some work. I mean, the, the work from home jobs for chemical engineers, there can't be a lot of them out there. So if that's the field you want to take, you, you got to understand this is, this is what it, what it requires. So yeah, it's definitely been a challenge. Uh, I'm hoping here in this fourth quarter and beginning of 2022, we'll see some people coming back to work and starting to appreciate some of the things that uh, the Yoma companies have to offer uh, uh, in terms of employment. Jeff, what are your thoughts? How can our industry uh, get the word out that this is a stable, good industry, that it's something that is a contribution to society? How can we compete with the Amazons and the Googles and and all the other technology-oriented organizations? I mean, I've long been a proponent that there's a moral case to be made for working in the lubricants industry, that it's not a dirty industry, that our society, our economy can't function without the products the industry makes. You can't get to work, you can't get to the store without lubricants for your vehicles, making any kind of product that metal, bending, shaping, what have you. Looking at the pandemic, you need metalworking fluids to make the hypodermic needles for all those vaccination shots, the ventilators, that there's such good that, that this industry does to reduce costs and to make everyone's lives more efficient and better. And we need to do a, a, a better job of selling that story uh, in, in terms of just how important this industry is to everyone's everyday lives. And you can do good things working for this industry. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt we need to do a better job of getting that message out there. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about engine oil specifications. You know, another big topic that uh, came up this year was the emergence of the International Fluids Consortium. You know, we don't have a lot of details at this point about, about the organization other than you know, some, some uh, information that, that they've shared with us that's been somewhat limited. Ilma sent a letter uh, recently asking for clarification on some points and, and uh, raising some questions that we've heard from members. You know, Greg, what are your thoughts about the organization as a um, lubricant manufacturer? Yeah, from, from a manufacturing standpoint, obviously we support anything in the industry that's for a positive impact or or for the good of it. What we don't like is a lot more regulations and a lot more fees associated with producing our products. There's a whole bunch of uh, challenges that presents for particularly smaller ILMA companies that can't necessarily afford these lump sum fees because they don't have the gallons to, to support it. So from the IFC perspective, since there are so many unknowns, right now I'm not real supportive of it until we get some things clarified. In particular, you know, what kind of voice are we going to have in terms of the specifications? Who's going to know how much additive and base oil it's going to require to meet these specifications? What are the fees for for the different specifications? So on and so forth. And, And more importantly, is it going to compete with the other organizations we currently are paying for, which would just be a redundancy that that we certainly do not need. 
you know, unfortunately, one of the things this this industry does is create a lot of uh, challenges and a lot of um, confusion to its members. And, and this is just a classic example of of an association coming in that we don't know what it's for, what it's going to cost us, and and why we need it. So, uh, so at this point in time, I'm saying I'm not a supporter of it. But again, we we don't know all the answers. So until that's all laid out, we're going to stay by the sidelines. Mike, as an additive producer, do you have a some thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I, I share some of the, the concerns that Greg has, but um, it's just upfront, I, I operate much more in a commercial space than a technical space here at Boronite. So uh, my views on this might be a, a little bit limited, but you know, the IFC, it's a, it's a very new initiative. And right now I think there's a, a lot more questions than there are answers. And I don't know if we, we have enough detail to truly understand the impact of the IFC proposal. I mean, additive companies like Oronite, we typically respond to um, changes in, in regulation or, um, or the OEM industry specifications. And then we supply technology that really matches up with, with those changes. I, I, I don't see any real change with what we do regarding the IFC, but um, you know, they just had their first meeting, I believe it was in July. So we're, we're still um, if we need to be part of it, I, I think we will because, um, you know, we would have to provide solutions that would meet those requirements. But uh, kind of as Greg said, I think it's, it's a little bit too early. And so um, we, we, I don't want to say it's wait and see for us right now, but we are we are just um, still a little early in the process. And I, I guess we'll probably have updates as, uh, as time permits here or as time as we see fit. Jeff, any thoughts about it? Well, again, I, I think I would share what both Mike and Greg have said that you know, we have more questions than answers as, at least from Ilma's perspective, based on the letter that was recently sent to the IFC to try to get you know, deeper into the, to the weeds. So, you know, my initial, the initial announcement was that the IFC would supplant API, ASEA, JSO, and you know, we see no response from API or ASEA that they intend to go away or to, you know, move every shift everything into uh, IFC. You know, folks right now, I mean, we're waiting for the next generation of DEXOS to, to hit. Meanwhile, API and the ILSAC group are moving forward with category next category development for both PCMOs and heavy duty. Um, so. Yeah, I, I think as Greg mentioned, uh, you know, the concerns with, is this just another layer, the kind of costs, if you go in a particular kind of specification, does it create worldwide supply imbalances and where do those get met first? So, you know, again, there, there's just more questions than answers at this point in terms of how this is going to work. Turning to established engine oil specifications, API's next heavy duty engine spec, PC-12 and GF7 are already in the works. Jeff, what are we looking at with those new categories? Well, first let's let's do on an interim basis on uh, CK4, well, the current PC11 spec. Ford has asked for, and it's out to ballot currently within the API lubricants group, I'll call it CK4 plus, uh, some issues with respect to uh, further testing uh, on, on the oils. I think Ilma's position on that is that it would require some new labeling and other things, and we're a little bit cautious about, about moving that area. The other is a request from the OEMs 
uh, for an SP plus. Uh, this goes to the low speed pre-ignition issue. And, and so that's currently being worked on within the API lubricants group. Beyond that, you, you've got uh, the requests for the, and the work groups are starting to form on uh, ILSAC GF7 and, and the next heavy duty category. Yeah, I, I think based on what we went through on, on, on GF6 that, you know, the effort is to try to speed things up. I don't think there's as much test development that's going to be necessary, but, uh, you know, certainly that's already started and it goes to the whole IFC issue as well. Jeff, you know, also the new obsolete uh, engine oil labeling rules that went through the National Conference on Weights and Measures go into effect January 1st. Can you just remind members of what that's all about? Sure. I mean, it's something that Ilma proposed beginning back in 2015 to Weights and Measures. It went through numerous iterations, but what was finally adopted and becomes effective on January 1st, 2022, is if you have any non-licensable API category, it requires the SA J183 Appendix A cautionary statement to be moved from the back label to the front display panel or front label of the bottle. So that it can, so if you're going to make and sell an, an SA oil, that, that warning that it's not meant for cars made after 1920 has to be on the front bottle so that the consumer or the regulatory enforcement people can go into a retail store, look at the bottle, and determine you know what what's what's inside without having to pull it up and look at the back. We we think that this will go a long way to improving the products that are in the market, particularly for those customers or consumers who might have older vehicles, where those obsolete oils actually could harm those cars and, and make their their useful life shorter than, than otherwise if they were using an appropriate oil in the car. So there's no sell-through period with the Weights and Measures Handbook 130 Amendment. It does require those label changes beginning January. About half the states automatically adopt the revisions to Handbook 130. Under ILMA's Enforceable Code of Ethics, it becomes a, basically a standard of care or, or you know that we expect ILMA members to satisfy going forward after January 1st through our quality testing program. I'll just take a brief second to add that on the tractor hydraulic fluid, the weights and measures also adopted change there so that the standardized the size, font, and color of the cautionary statement for obsolete tractor fluids, the old 303 products, uh, that also kicks in on January 1st. So folks need to look at Handbook 130. If they've got questions, certainly contact Dilma and, and we'll help them through the process. The labeling requirement for THF was in effect this year though, correct? Correct. It, it actually kicked in uh, January 1st of 2020. Right. It just said that the tractor hydraulic fluid labeling needed to be clearly legible on the front and that was very subjective. So right. the point was the Weights and Measures Handbook 130 has uniform labeling requirements, and so it now refers the, the manufacturer back to those requirements as far as size, font, color, as I mentioned. Yes, all of this is long overdue, so that's good news. As long as we're on the topic of regulations and just talking briefly about issues related to metalworking, uh, Jeff, the EU and the UK are looking to ban mid-chain chlorinated paraffins. What's the outlook here in the US? 
Well, just to clarify, so right now in the EU, uh, they're going through a process of listing mid-chain chlorinated paraffins as a substance of very high concern. And that triggers a number of regulatory requirements under the EU REACH program. Here in the United States, what we're looking at is we're operating under current significant new use rule that allows uh, mid-chains to continue to be used for metalworking fluids. Uh, there's a requirement under that significant new use rule for the manufacturers of the chlorinated paraffins to submit test data to EPA at the end of a five-year period. We're about halfway through that at this point. It remains to be seen what EPA might do at the end of the five-year period. I mean, certainly ILMA is remaining engaged on this issue with other coalition partners, I'll call them, but besides the manufacturers, other users of chlorinated paraffins, both mid and long chain and very long chain. Members continue to look to alternatives, but in many areas, there's there's no alternative. Right. Uh, I, I think my own view would be that, that I think we'll see folks within ILMA if they haven't already gravitating to the longer chain products just to just to just just to avoid some of the controversy you know we had a change in administrations and typically that means leadership at EPA changes and you know what have we seen with EPA re activity related to Tosca during 2021 and what what are we looking at in the future well I mean how much time do we have I think the, the short way to describe this would be that the, the current administration, the Biden administration, their view of chemical management is to reduce risk to, to either no risk or as low as you can go. I think the Trump administration, and it's certainly what Ilma has been proposing, is that you know there's risk out there and you manage the risk as best you can. And that's the tension that's going on between the regulated community and EPA right now. Uh, EPA is just every week, uh, there's something new out of TSCA in terms of risk assessment, re chemical reporting, just other changes that, that they're making it more difficult. A number of our folks in ILMA have benefited from the low volume exemption program under TSCA. It's not going to go away, but they're going to make it more difficult for folks to use it. Uh, so it, it presents a challenge for us both in terms of compliance and cost and, and you know, just everyday management of, of the products that, that the members use. And then now to kind of wrap things up, uh, we've talked a lot about the challenges of the past couple of years. From where each of you sit, where do you see the future of our industry going? You know, we've got EVs on the, on the horizon, you know, more push toward sustainability. So I'm just going to throw that out there and let some, who wants to go first on that one? You know, you know from our perspective, uh, the majority of the, the oils that, that I sell are related to automotive lubricants. And, uh, you know, my biggest concern over the last couple of years is, is where is the electric vehicles position going to be in, in the market and how's that going to impact uh, the, the growth of the company? I'm much more optimistic now than I previously was. And, and the driver for that is although Biden has, has put some strict requirements and has singled out electric vehicles as being the solution, all he's really doing is trying to increase the, uh, the cafe requirements or the uh, corporate annual fuel economy requirements of, of, these, of these companies. 
And what that basically means is, although they are going to offer electric vehicles on their platform, it's up to the consumer to decide whether or not that's a, a, a car they want to purchase, which is a much better position than you must buy an electric vehicle. Also, when you look globally, several uh, countries and, and continents even for that matter are saying that electric vehicles, they have no ability to put the infrastructure and to sustain those. So I think there will always be a need for uh, motorals uh, and engines. Most likely you're gonna see smaller engines, uh, lighter viscosity oils, but there always will be a need for that. Uh, I mean, I find it very hard for the state of Texas to uh, go electric uh, quickly with uh, the amount of trucks and, uh, and just a general driving distance that they have, uh, a vehicle that can go 200 miles without having to need to be charged. I just don't see being fit in rural America, Texas, uh, parts of California, Nevada. It just doesn't make any sense. So uh, again, I, I think it's, it's a much more positive uh, view than I've had previously. The lubricants industry has done a fantastic job in terms of recycling oil and renewable uh, energy or renewable oils. So, uh, I mean, we're certainly understanding what the need is from an environmental standpoint, and we're doing the best we can to accommodate that. I just wish the administration would stop, you know, bad mouthing it and putting all the pressure on 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 one industry when I'm sure that the lithium batteries and and the uh, cement industry who's building these platforms for windmills are creating more pollution than we typically uh, uh, generate on an annual basis. So again, as I mentioned at the last meeting, um, very positive. I, I think there is some, some good growth, particularly in terms of infrastructure bills that are gonna require a heck of a lot more lubricants to, to rebuild parts of this uh, infrastructure in the country. So I'm pretty positive um, moving forward. And once we get over these supply issues, I think we'll be back to, uh, to a very exciting industry. Hey, who wants to go next? Yeah, I'll just I'll add in to Greg, and I think about, you know, every conference I attend, be it with Elmo or other organizations, I mean, there's always a section on on EV, and it always just seems to be the same message. So I do feel the same way. I think, as Greg, as Greg stated, I do feel like there's still a lot of, like, unknown in North America, but also globally about what's the impact of EV. There will need, there will need to be a, a lubricant. I think the consumer part of it, I think the consumers are still questioning, like, you know, what's it going to cost me and, and what's the, you know, how reliable is the car? I think GM, I heard last week, like GM just announced with their Volt, um, all these provisions of if you bought one of our cars of, you know, how far you have to park it away and outdoor parking, you know, in case it, 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 it just kind of catches fire. So I think from a consumer standpoint, I'd pause and say, is this really the right path that we need to take? Are we ready yet to start manufacturing, mass manufacturing EV vehicles? So I do feel like I think this is a, a long, a, a long ways out for us to start getting um, panicky about the future of lubricants needed um, to support the automotive industry. I'll also say there's just been a lot. I think I mentioned in the last panel. I sit on Motiva's um, ESG group, so the Environmental, Social, and Governance group, and, and that's been interesting just to see that's just you know impacting our rating. So you know, Motiva got its first ESG rating without us even knowing we were being rated against. So a lot of a lot of work's been going on as far as collecting, you know, what is our responsibility as a corporate citizen, and then out out to the financial committee um, community to show that we do have measures in place that that do address certain environmental, social, and, and government types of, re, of of issues. So everything from how you hire to responsibility from a refiner. We're addressing that, and, and I think that's just one thing that's just gotten a lot of headlight uh, headway in the past year is, is that initiative in, in itself. 
I don't feel like the EV, hopefully the EV message starts to get a little more, um, I'll call realistic going forward, but maybe we'll keep hearing the same thing. It's going to come, um, different markets adopting at different times, but there will continue to be a need for a lubricant. Mike? Thanks, Colleen, and thanks, Holly. Colleen, from a, from a larger company perspective, yeah, we certainly see that the pressure is put on us to, to be a better corporate citizen. So just in the last week or so, like we've announced, we've increased our um, our investment in, in lower carbon solutions by an addition up to $10 billion right now. So there's certainly pressure on all of us to try to be a, a little bit greener. But with respect you know, to an additive company and electric vehicles, if you look even 10 years out, um, the overall car park or the, the number of, of cars um, in the marketplace right now or in the nation, electric vehicles are still going to make up a very, very small percentage of that. So um, well, we, we don't see anything changing immediately. And the other part of it is on the heavy duty side on trucking, there still hasn't been any, any realistic solution for, for that piece of the market that represents a, a very large part of lubricant sales. One of the other things, having grown up in a, in a northern tier state, um, you know, you do hear that um, in, in cold environments, the, the batteries typically um, don't last quite as long or the charge doesn't last as long. So um, the, the acceptance in some of the northern tier states and some of the colder countries of the world, um, I think that that remains to be seen. Um, you know, Ornick continues to work on, you know, some solutions for electric vehicles, but there's a uh, there's no doubt that um, the, the, the overall volume of, of lubricants that would go in an EV would pale by comparison to what a normal uh, internal combustion engine would uh, would uh, consume over the, the the lifespan of the vehicle. But um, you know, we, we still see circling back to you know the, the the future of our industry and you know and, and come and work for us. It really is going to be an exciting place to work for a number of years. We just don't see electric vehicles having a huge, huge dent in the overall lubricant consumption globally for, for quite some time. Jeff, how, how do you see the future shaping up? I think I, I share the views of all the other panelists in terms of, at least on the near-term side. And I, I guess where I sit in terms of being counsel to the association and having a long-term involvement with both ILMA and its members, you know, I, I think the hallmark, one of the hallmarks of the group is flexibility and adaptability. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily worried, but I look at it more like whack-a-mole or maybe incremental. Uh, I've been very interested in and concerned with some of the recent plastics recycling legislation that was adopted and enacted in Maine and Oregon. Uh, by the time this appears, Governor Newsom in California likely have signed SB 343 that really limits the recyclability claims that people can make on their bottles. And, you know, given all the quart bottles of motor oil that are sold every year, that's going to be a challenge for us, I think, in the near term, that, that we as an industry need to get our hands around and do a better job with. Looking, depending on what happens with the Democrats' $3.5 trillion budget bill and some of the social engineering that goes with that, you know, again, on the Green New Deal, the climate change type issues, you know, I, I think we, we just got to stay sharp and attuned. Uh, Colleen mentioned the ESG provisions. Um, you know, I'm, I think the Biden administration is putting a lot of pressure on the banks. And so ILMA members going to their banks for loans or to renew a revolving line of credit 
are going to be asked about ESG and, and their ESG scores. So it's going to work its way down to the smaller members in the association. So I think over the next couple of years, while we remain focused on EVs and just penetration into the market, we've got these other issues that are kind of related to it that, that we need to be mindful of and, and making sure that we're, we're addressing uh, you know, head on. I think it was really good and I really, really appreciate everyone's participation. I thought it was an excellent session. I think members are really going to get a lot out of this and this is going to be also featured in Compoundings, our, our last issue of the year. So be ready for that. <laughs> it's going to be good. Uh, all right. Well, with that, I'll say I'll say thanks once again. You guys have been so generous with your time. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity, and I'll probably see many of you next month, right? So yeah, we'll see if it's going to happen. Actually, in in like two weeks. Yeah, I went at a. I actually went to a a trade show two weeks ago. And it was it was that they had a happy hour, and happy hour ended. Usually, that means everybody disperses, and everybody just hung out and talked. It was people had not had interaction like that in quite some time. It was really interesting to see. Um, well attended, and uh, I hope we see the same uh, in Scottsdale in a couple weeks. Yep, I think we will. We're approaching 800 registrants, so that's that's good news. Yeah, if, if Elma Engage was any indication of just people's readiness to see each other and have conversations, and Mike, you mentioned the bar. I, I don't think the bartenders at the Orlando Hotel knew what hit them. You could tell they were they were out of practice. So um, I think it was a great Elma engage. You know, in Orlando was a great way just to say people are ready just to meet face to face. So I think Phoenix will will definitely pick that up. Looking forward to our association clients have returned to in person meetings, and everyone's been a home run. Yeah, that's great. That's great to hear. I was hear. at a one meeting in Tahoe a couple of weeks ago. Even with the forest fires out there and the place being covered in smoke, it was just a very successful meeting. Yeah, good. Good to hear. Well, thank right. you, Holly, for including us again. Oh, well, thank you. And we'll see you soon. All right. Thank you. Bye, all. Bye. Thanks. Bye. What a great discussion. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. And I want to thank all of our panelists for all of your insights and a great discussion. I want to thank Chevron Oronite for their support throughout the year for this Loop Trend series. And finally, from all of us at ILMA as we begin the holiday season, I hope it's a great one. We look forward to future sessions and I'll see you next year. Thanks for tuning in to Lube Trends, the official podcast of the Independent Lubricant Manufacturers Association. I'm Holly Alfano, CEO of ILMA. Thank you for listening.